0: Keep KPFK strong on the web. Digital services cost KPFK real money. KPFK is more than what you hear on the radio. At KPFK.org, you can listen to our live stream along with our on-demand content whenever you like. These digital services are free for you, but they cost us more money each year. For all of those times, you've gone to KPFK.org, discovered new information, and shared it with others. Please consider making a donation today. Just click the donate button at kpfk.org. Thank you.
1: you, you KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Today's headlines, thoughts about colorism. We're talking about the real Zelensky, the meaning of House committee reports investigating January 6th, the Ecuador against Chevron lawsuit, how the brand president of Levi's was forced to quit over wanting the schools to open during COVID, and an analysis of Latin American multipolar organizations. All this and more coming up. Okay, you gotta read the next one, okay? Hey, please, Angela. Good evening. I'm Zeri Rideau.
2: And I'm Angela Birdsong. Long Beach Mayor Rex Richardson has asked city officials to come up with an emergency declaration on homelessness. Following in the footsteps of L.A. Mayor Karen Bass, who was in attendance at Richardson's Swearing in This Week. The Los Angeles Times says, quote, a 2022 report on Long Beach's unhoused population, the seventh most populated city in California, has 3,296 people experiencing some level of homelessness. And that is a steep increase of 62 percent compared to the 2020 last time the city conducted a similar report. Seven Los Angeles Police Department officers have been recently arrested with charges of suspicion of drunk driving, and department officials are wagging their fingers at them. A department wide bulletin, first reported by KNBC TV Channel 4, says that, quote, half of those arrested on suspension of driving under the influence had a blood alcohol level of more than twice the legal limit, and that several of the incidents resulted in crash injuries. The bulletin also states that the arrests are, quote, a substantial and sudden increase and represent an alarming trend as the the end-of-the-year celebrations commence. Last week we reported a decrease in the number of hate crimes attacks on LA's Asian and American Pacific Islander communities, but that may have been incorrect. According to the Asian Journal, a recent article states major m- metropolitan areas do not submit data to FBI, causing a severe document under count of hate crimes. The article states, quote, several major law enforcement regions, including Los Angeles County, New York, Miami and Chicago, did not submit data for the FBI's 2021 Uniform Crime Reports, which likely led to a dramatic undercount of hate crimes. The article goes on to state that, quote, law enforcement agencies are currently not mandated to report data for UCR reports. Reporting is voluntary. Data for the 2021 released Report on December 12th was derived from 11,883 law enforcement agencies, 6,929 agencies, almost one third did not provide data. Fighting for his life, Deacon Steve Strode of Pleasant Green Missionary Baptist Church found on the ground behind his car. Badly beaten after a senseless, brutal attack near the Dan Ryan Expressway in Chicago, Illinois. Strode's loved ones are demanding, begging, praying for answers, saying for the attackers to turn themselves in, for any witnesses to speak up, and for the police to step up their investigation. Strode's wife, Monique Strode, cries out, quote, I just want everyone to continue to pray, and if you know anything about who did this to my husband, please come forward. Don't be afraid to come and let us know who left him in the street bleeding, says Mrs. Strode at a prayer vigil with family and friends for her husband outside of the University of Chicago Medical Center. Deacon Steve Strode, driving home from work, is rear-ended, pulls over, and is attacked by those who hit his car, according to the family. The Chicago police finds him viciously beaten and unable to speak. At the time of this report, Strode is still in ICU in a coma and no arrests have been made, states Attorney Daniel Carr, a friend of Strode's wife, Monique.
1: KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles.
3: My name is Mariah Perkins, and I am 17 years old. I have experienced colorism many times in my life. I grew up in a house where my step-sibling was treated better because of her skin tone. This made me dislike myself at times, and even wished that I was lighter or born to at least one white parent. While in middle school, people were very concerned about skin tones for some reason. Some students would even express their dislike towards darker women and how they only wanted to date or be intimate with women with lighter skin. A while back, I was speaking to someone who claimed that they don't even like black women. They continued to express their distaste for women who had darker skin. After this, they expressed how they liked me even though I was darker. This made me feel extremely uncomfortable as a woman with darker skin because it made no sense to me how someone's skin tone could be equivalent to their beauty. I have noticed the impact of colorism on children as well. While having conversations with my younger sister, she has expressed how she feels that being lighter or even white is better. This saddens me because I wish she could see the beauty in her pigmented skin. There were times where she preferred to play with lighter Barbies or even made her character on games like Roblox have lighter skin. There are so many examples of colorism in the world and especially in the media. We live in a society where girls with darker skin are underrepresented or not represented at all. Actresses such as Zendaya, Zoe Kravitz, and Amandala Stenberg are often used when the truth is they do not represent black women as a whole because black women come in all different colors, shapes, and sizes. According to colorismhealing.com, dark-skinned girls who internalize colorism may express it with statements like, I'm so ugly, I wish I was pretty like that, I don't like my nose. I wish I had good hair. I wish I was light skinned. I'd be cute if I wasn't so dark, or I'm too dark to wear loud colors. We should stop thinking like this because your skin tone does not determine your beauty. I would like to close off by saying, even though I have had all of these experiences and witnessed these things, I would not change my skin tone for all the money in the world. I wish other people would feel the same way too, because all skin is good skin. I'm Mariah Perkins with the Women's Leadership Project, reporting for KPFK Rebel
1: Alliance News. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been pronounced the man of the year by Time magazine, met yesterday with President Joe Biden and has been wined and dined by celebrities and even invited to speak at NATO. Yet little is known about the former TV actor who portrayed the Ukrainian president in a comedy show called Servant of the People. The Mintcasts Minnar Adley and Max Blumenthal from The Grey Zone discuss the real Zelensky and what his policies stand for.
4: Today, we're going to be talking about how under the cover of the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine, Ukraine is undergoing economic shock therapy, including a massive privatization drive and attacks on worker power. So, right now, the rich are taking advantage of this crisis to buy state resources and land at very low prices, while undermining Ukrainian labor rights. This is all part of a process that the most powerful people in the world have done repeatedly to countries and communities in crisis, as highlighted in Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine. Now, President Zelensky has recently passed bills targeting workers' rights and their ability to form unions. Yet, whenever Zelensky is presented within the media, he's always depicted as a war hero, especially by the Western left. So who is the real Zelensky, and why is he being idolized by the Western media? So today, we are joined by Max Blumenthal. He's the editor of The Grey Zone, who has done a lot of reporting on Zelensky. On the Zelensky, that the media doesn't want you to know about. Max, thank you so much for being here today.
5: Thanks for having me, Minar.
4: It has recently been announced that Zelensky has been voted Time Magazine's Person of the Year. What is your reaction to this?
5: Well, the whole Western media still continues to treat Zelensky as this heroic Nelson Mandela type figure and ignores what he rec- he did this week, which was to outlaw the Russian branch of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. They're rounding up priests as we speak in Kherson, along with members of the Jewish ultra-Orthodox sect, Chabad, who stayed behind in Kherson to tend to their people and their parishioners when it was Russian territory, before the Russian retreat. And so they're all being punished now and accused of Russian collaboration. Who knows what's going to happen to them? This is This is the way Zelensky has been running the country especially since the war broke out. And we've reported, um, you can look at my reporting at the Gray Zone along with Esha Krishnaswamy on the Pinochet-style regime of disappearances, assassinations, torture, arrests of all of Zelensky's opposition, including his most popular and prominent opponent, the leader of the Ukrainian Patriots Party, Viktor Medvedchuk, who was kidnapped and tortured by the Ukrainian SBU security services this year after his party was outlawed. You no, know, he disappears this guy and throws him in a, a dungeon after outlawing his party and 12 other political parties, outlawing all opposition media. So that's the kind of that's the political side. And you know, many mayors have been assassinated who have attempted to negotiate civilian corridors with the full express support of Zelensky's Interior Ministry. We know about the kill list. You know, Marot Varets, which you know, even prominent American figures, Roger Waters, Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector, are are named and targeted. Their children are on this list. Hundreds of journalists have been placed on the list. This is run by the Ukrainian Interior Ministry. This is the kind of authoritarian, hardline regime that Zelensky is presiding over. But then you have the economic side, um, which goes hand in hand with this pinochet-style regime. It's very similar to Pinochet, except without the, you know, the military uniforms and the goose stepping, you have a a former comedian who uh, now suddenly claims that he has this rich Jewish heritage to win over Western liberals. And he uh, recently actually, yeah, it was in September. So right after Zelensky signed the law that you mentioned in August, where he outlawed, essentially outlawed unions, 70 percent of the ukrainian workforce is covered by this law because it targets smes or small to medium-sized enterprises which have uh, less than 250 employees you're now not allowed to form a union a few weeks after signing that law zelensky rang the bell at the new york stock exchange by video with all of these corporate chieftains and ukrainian representatives cheering at the new york stock exchange alex rubinstein covered this for us. And I think this is one of our best and really really most concise articles about what this war represents. The headline is Zelensky rings New York Stock Exchange bell as Euro dips below dollar. This was also at the same time that the destruction of the EU economy had begun in earnest. At this point, Zelensky had hired, or at least his government had hired, Uh, WPP, which is one of the top PR firms in the world, in order to sell multinational corporations on Advantage Ukraine. Advantage Ukraine offers the best investment opportunity since World War II, according to Zelensky, to invest in Ukraine's economy. And which companies are they offering as investment targets? SMEs, small to medium-sized enterprises, the same companies that are being officially de-unionized, where unionization is officially blocked. Zelensky's offering this investment menu under Advantage Ukraine. The investment the investment menu is every public asset. He's offering the financial rape of the Ukrainian public holdings, of uh, just straight up asset stripping. Basically, the, the same project that took place in Russia in the 1990s will take place in post-war or contemporary Ukraine. And this is actually a project that has been continuous since the 2014 Maidan coup, which was triggered by the uh, government of Viktor Yanukovych, who's considered, they they always call him uh, pro-Russian, but basically what he did was he wanted to arrange a, a deal to provide for gas and Imports and exports to Ukraine's traditional largest economic partner, which is Russia, because they're right next door. And what the EU was offering him was an association agreement that would have resulted in austerity and would have prevented them from trading with getting cheap gas in the winter from Russia, which is just right there, or cheap grain from one of the world's largest grain providers, or exporting their grain right next door. And when he said no this is impossible and the, the privatization as 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 corrupt as this government currently is this is too much privatization and I'm not going to sell out our workers to this degree. This is all very well documented and that's when the coup began. So since 2014 the Ukrainian government under Petro Poroshenko who wasn't even I mean he he's essentially the leader of a military junta under Poroshenko the government Ended their restriction on GMOs, and this was done under intense lobbying from Monsanto and Dow. And then they began selling off their farmland to these company, these multinational corporations. The asset stripping began right away after 2014. I mean, so this is a long-standing project, and it's being carried out now under cover of war, along with all this political repression. And Western liberals are happy to forgive it all because their brains have been were completely hacked by RussiaGate and. Everything is forgiven that Zelensky and Ukraine does just to stick it to Putin.
1: For decades, Texaco Oil Company destroyed the lives of tens of thousands of indigenous peoples and farming communities in the Amazon. Human rights attorney Stephen Donzinger led the legal team that represented the indigenous population in Ecuador against Chevron, the huge oil company that bought Texaco. Stephen Starr of Extinction Rebellion has the story.
6: The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will
7: not be televised. We could start with you giving us just a a brief overview of how you found yourself in the environmental movement as a human
6: rights attorney. How did that begin? Stephen Donziger on KPFK. Thank you, Steve, for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I graduated from law school a long time ago, probably before many of your listeners were um, born, in 19, way back in 1993. And I wanted to use my law degree to help better society. And I sort of fell into this case down in Ecuador uh, because a classmate of mine in law school was from Ecuador and told me about this and this massive pollution problem in the Amazon of that country. I'd never been there. But just after law school, um, he and I and some other lawyers and scientists organized a a trip to go down there and investigate. We found, you know, just the apocalyptic pollution um, in the Amazon. Uh, you know, pools of of oil on the ground in this, you know, what formerly pristine ecosystem pits, hundreds of toxic waste pits gouged out of the floor of the jungle by Texaco. Texaco was the operator of this, of the oil fields in this area, um, and it was it was horrid. And basically, all of us um, decided to try to do something about it, and. The, the something was filing a lawsuit i mean as lawyers you know that's sort of the solution where that immediately comes to mind and that we're trained to pursue and we filed a lawsuit against texaco in new york federal court in 1993 um you know alleging massive environmental contamination uh violations of of international law um and sought you know, compensation to the local communities, which include, by the way, five indigenous peoples, as well as dozens of farmer communities, um, uh, for the harm caused. And this harm took place from approximately the mid-1960s to the early 1990s when Texaco fled Ecuador um, after having taken out literally billions and billions of dollars of profit and left behind what is probably the world's worst oil contamination, this was done deliberately as part of an engineering design. It was not an accidental oil spill. I want to be very clear about that. Um, they they designed their system of oil extraction to pollute the Amazon rainforest, knowing that it would harm and lead harm people, lead to cancers. Decimate indigenous cultures um, and ultimately lead to what I believe are thousands of deaths. Oil's bad for you if you get it, if you drink it, it gets on your skin, or you smell the vapors, or you're, you spend too much time near it. You're very likely going to get sick. You're being exposed to very harmful and cancer-causing toxins. So, dumping oil um, in an area where people live is, to me you know, the equivalent of some form of of homicide. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that Texaco intended to kill people, but they knew by engaging in these reckless acts um, that people would likely die. And that's exactly what's happened.
7: And when you say reckless acts, what you mean uh, specifically is, is that they went in, they drilled, and they left all the damage without any cleanup whatsoever. Is that not correct?
6: That's correct. I mean, they claim they did a cleanup. What what happened was so after we filed our lawsuit in 1993 seeking reparations for this harm, they suddenly, you know, decided to do a cleanup and or what they called a cleanup. I mean, they basically spent a paltry amount of money, um, you know, maybe maybe a penny on the dollar in terms of what actually was needed. They spent 40 million dollars to cover up some of these hundreds of toxic waste pits um, with dirt without cleaning them out. Um, It was the cleanup was a sham. I mean, everyone noticed it, we went back to these same pits that they claimed to have cleaned up um, and tested them with soils and water, you know, groundwater, um, around, you know, in and around these pits, and they had massive amounts of oil contaminants um this was years later when we actually had a trial down in Ecuador so the cleanup was a total sham but they tried to use it this is a classic oil industry tactic you know they felt a little heat from the lawsuit so they tried to sort of act like they were cleaning it up um as a way to you know try to get the case dismissed it didn't work but of course that's not the point you know they never just (laughs) big picture point here they never actually try to win these cases They try to just not lose them because as long as we don't win them, you know, they they're in the power position and the default position is they can continue to pollute and continue to do what they're doing. So, you know, it was just another their so-called sham cleanup. I mean, their their sham cleanup that they call cleanup um, was really just another way to try to muck up the issues, confuse the issues and delay the court proceeding. By then, Chevron had bought Texaco. So it's now Chevron is defending the case. I'm certain they thought we would just go away once they moved it down to Ecuador because it's so complicated um, as American lawyers to bring these toxic tort cases in a foreign jurisdiction that you're unfamiliar with. But we kept going um, and we ended up winning in 2011 a historic judgment um, based on, you know, voluminous evidence that we had submitted, including thousands of chemical samples of you know the pollution at these various sites that they had drilled at. <laughs> excuse me over many years as well as testimony from people who had been harmed um and the court the trial court imposed a roughly a 19 billion dollar judgment on chevron you know at the time it came down uh, people were like wow that's such a big number well you know i'm going to argue it really isn't because by comparison. If people remember what BP did in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010 with the Deepwater Horizon spill, BP over the years has ended up paying close to $70 billion in compensation to those it harmed and fines for the completely reckless, albeit accidental, remember what Chevron did in Ecuador was deliberate and by design um for what they you know for this massive oil spill in the gulf of mexico so the the 19 billion um yes it's a it's a number that hurts uh them hurts chevron to some degree causes pain but it's not anything they can't handle it's actually i think a relatively modest number given the magnitude of the harm they caused down in ecuador and the amount of years it's been going on so in any event that number was cut in half on appeal by the appellate court because they threw out a punitive damages award Um, and it's historic because uh, you know it doesn't appear to me that in any other case in the world involving indigenous peoples has there ever been an environmental judgment of this magnitude? And we all know that so much of the environmental damage from the fossil fuel industry takes place on indigenous territory. So this is a very important event. I would argue it is um, somewhat of a paradigmatic shift in what can act, what is possible. Um, for indigenous peoples harmed by the fossil fuel industry to accomplish in court. And I would also say that it is intimately connected to the health of the planet and the survival of of our world, of life, Um, in that if, if there are mechanisms to actually hold the major polluters accountable, the calculus of how they go about their business shifts very much in favor of vulnerable communities, frontline earth defenders, that is indigenous peoples, and just the health of the planet. So I think this is a very important event. I think it's momentous. It's not over because um, we still haven't collected, um, but it, the, the judgment exists. It happened. There was a trial, the evidence was put forth. The world knows Music about new... Millions of people know about this. It's very significant, but the work is not done. We need to finish the job.
1: KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. The
2: self-described progressive and former brand president of Louis Strauss, Jennifer Say, was forced to resign after 23 years with the company because in 2020, she has spoken out against the COVID school closures. Jimmy Dore interviewed her on his podcast, The Jimmy Dore Show. For
8: children without a serious medical condition, the danger of severe COVID is so low as to be difficult to quantify. The risk of long COVID among children, a source of fear among many parents, is also very low. That was in The New York Times, and that was in 2021 that was in there. They also said this in New York Intelligence magazine. It said, according to the CDC, among children, the mortality risk from COVID-19 is actually lower than from the flu.
9: As early as March... They're actually, it was already known that the median age of, age of death was over 80, I think, coming out of Italy. So there were already articles being written sporadically. I found them, that kids were at very, very little risk and that long-term school closures were never part of any pre-pandemic playbook because they're too harmful. They're too harmful to the most vulnerable among us. Mm. And in this case, with COVID, where children were actually not at equal risk, it was especially egregious. So I was outspoken from the get-go. And San Francisco, I think, was the very first school district to announce school closures on March 13th,
8: 2020. And so... You were right, by the way. So just, yeah. this to, just spoiler alert, she was correct on the science because now everybody who was forced locking down the schools is now trying to pretend that they were never for locking down the schools. Uh-huh. And who am I talking about? I'm talking about Dr. Fauci. Here he is bragging or not? Bra- he's going to tell us that he recommended we shut down not just schools, but the whole country. Listen to this. I recommended to the president that we shut the country down. Uh, and that was a very difficult decision, because I knew it would have serious economic consequences. And so here he is now trying to deny it.
4: ...down schools if you had to do it all over again.
10: Well, you know, again, it's uh, first of all, I didn't recommend locking anything down. You, you, you... Uh,
9: in San Francisco, 50,000 public school children were shut out of school. Um, the private schools closed at first um, as well, but of course they opened not too long thereafter, and that was fine. Um, and I was alarmed from the beginning. The data was there from the beginning, uh, and so I was vocal on social media. Eventually, I had no one followed me. I didn't think anybody would notice. Um, but eventually, you know, those of us who uh, opposed the lockdowns and the school closures, we all found each other, and I developed a little bit of a following. Eventually, I wrote op-eds. I uh, led rallies in San Francisco. I ended up on the local news. I became especially um, incensed when the private schools opened in September of 2020 in my city of San Francisco while public. Schools remain stubbornly closed with no sign of opening any anytime soon. And of course, at this point, my peers at the company, other executives, as well as my boss, are telling me you have to stop talking about this. You really need to think about it. When you speak, you speak on behalf of the company. I said, I don't. I'm a mom of four. Um, I'm speaking on behalf of myself as a citizen of San Francisco. I was urged repeatedly. I would ask, do I have to stop? They 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 had acknowledged they couldn't tell me I had to stop, but it got more and more heated. Um, And I just, you know, when they sent their kids back to school, because they all sent their kids to private school, I was the only one with kids in public.
8: So wait a minute. So your kids are in public school and you start advocating for them to open the public schools. Meanwhile, all the executives that you work with at Levi, all their kids go to private school and And their private schools are open.
9: Yeah. And they're not too scared to send their kids to school. They clearly think in-person learning is better and that it matters and they're sending their kids. And at the same time. Behind the scenes, they're telling me, you have to stop, this is controversial. During this time when I was getting all this pushback from my peers, I got promoted to brand president. So that's evidence of the fact that I was actually doing a good job, right? You don't promote someone from chief marketing officer to brand president and say, you know, you could be the CEO one day if they're not doing a good job. Our business was great coming out of lockdown when our stores had been closed, all that's fine. Then um, in the spring of 2021, I made um, the fatal mistake of going on Fox News when invited. We'd approach the New York Times. We approached CNN. Nobody would have us. Uh, It was just sort of one incendiary statement after the next about how if schools opened, all the teachers would die. And they would put forth these metrics that were impossible to meet. They wouldn't invite us to talk about the harms being done. She's a conspiracy theorist. She's a racist. She hates masks. She's anti-vax. And so what? So would
8: you would you ever have a conversation with any other of the executives at Levi when and you would say to them, "But your kids are going to school. How could you?" Oh yeah. And what would they say back to you?
9: You just can't. It's too. I mean, even one, the head of HR said to me, "Jen, you're right, but you just can't say these things."
8: So it's like cult-like behavior, right? That's like it
9: is. Yes, these are the tenets and the beliefs of the cult. If you violate them, you're a heretic. You are an alt-right, QAnon, conspiracy theorist. I was, you know, I had to do an apology tour. At one point, the sort of cacophony of complaints got to be enough that I was asked to do this apology tour, where I would have to stand up in front of a certain subset of employees and apologize. I agreed to it, and I didn't apologize. I figured I'll explain myself. I thought of myself as convincing enough that perhaps I could build, I could build bridges. But I received an email um, from a colleague in corporate communications framing up what I should be prepared to, to do in this apology tour. It started with, are you a good person or a bad person? Are you with us or against us?
8: What, in that, what does that even mean?
9: Well, I, I'm also advocating for the values I thought that we all had agreed to. I mean, San Francisco public schools are 60% low-income children. They're disproportionately black and brown children. Here in the summer of 2020, we did all this you know, arm waving about equality of opportunity and fighting racism. And yet the one thing we could have actually done to help minority students in San Francisco and provide them with equality of opportunity is to advocate for schools to open because the rich white children were in private schools and the other kids were not. Uh, But that was not the narrative. As you well know, the narrative of the democratic party was You've got to lock down until I don't know when, no more COVID. You've got, I mean, the rule kept changing as to when that would be over, and you've got to support closed schools or else you want teachers to die and you want black children to die. That was the narrative. If you challenged it, you were alt right conspiracy theorists. I was also told I would need to answer questions about my husband. Uh, my husband was very vocal and has a more aggressive tone than I do. I have sort of a well-trained diplomatic voice of a woman in corporate America. He doesn't. Um, he expressed a lot of um, uh, criticism of the va- of ma- mandates at first, vaccine mandates, and then of the vaccines themselves. So I was told I would also need to answer questions about him and his stances. And is he an anti-vaxxer? My answer to that was, How? Do, what does that have to do with anything? He doesn't work here. You have to disavow people, you know, in this sort of cult-like situation. You have to – it's like Scientology and disconnection, right? You have to sever ties with people that don't believe, that are not true believers. And so – I was expected to sort of disavow him, essentially. I couldn't disagree with him. That wasn't sufficient. My peer, the head of corporate communication, delivered uh, a dossier of my tweets and social media posts to the CEO, my boss, on a weekly basis. Wow. Um, Then I was was told I was still a candidate for CEO if I would stop tweeting. I said I wasn't going to stop tweeting. He told me we need to do a background check on you and your husband. I agreed because I had no real choice. I was told there's no longer a place for you. Um, we'll offer you severance, a million dollars to walk away quietly. Um, I did not want to sign a non disclosure agreement, so I quit instead and I resigned on February 13th. And the piece in Barry Weiss's Common Sense, now the free press, um, appeared on February 14th. And the next day, you'll find this interesting, three members of the San Francisco Board of Education were recalled. By 75% of the voters in San Francisco because they refused to open the schools. So a majority agreed with me but failed to speak up. So I looked like the lunatic, fringe, right, insane person. If we had had a societal wide debate about this that was honest, that didn't silence doctors who had opposing opinions. The, the schools would have opened sooner.
8: Now everything's kind of turned on its head, right? Now the Democratic Party is against free speech and they're for Big Farm. And so, what has this done to you and your idea about politics?
9: Well, I don't trust anyone. I, don't, I think it's all a lie. They never believed any of the things they said. I feel maybe I was duped. Maybe I didn't see it. Maybe they changed. I don't know. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. But I'm certainly not um, a Democrat anymore, but I'm not running to the other side either. But I am disgusted. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised.
1: In our ongoing look at the rise of global multipolarity, Don Barr returns to the Latin American Caribbean region with a look at some of the rising architecture of that multipolar world with journalist Stephen Sefton, based in Esteli, Nicaragua.
7: Today we return to Esteli, Nicaragua to speak with journalist Stephen Sefton as we tour the various multilateral organizations in the Latin America Caribbean region. Last week we discussed Mercosur and Salac. Uh, Stephen, I'm glad you're here again. I guess we can pick up where we left off. We were going through some of the multilateral, uh, you know, organizations that have been, they pretty much sprung up. Mercosur a little earlier, but since Hugo Chavez, uh, you know, became president in 1998, 99 uh and and started doing this massive outreach around the region of course Fidel Castro had been working on that for a long time but he wasn't working alone anymore and it started to bear fruit pretty quickly
11: yeah and la- last time, the last time we were able to discuss this uh general issue we were we managed to talk about um Mercosur and uh CELAC the community of Latin American and Caribbean states and the But there are there there are various things that um, we might that are very important to add to that because there are so many other small organizations. Um, um, The most important of those uh, organizations from the point of view of people here in Nicaragua is ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance of the Americas, uh, when it was initially started by um, uh, or, or, or designed and, and devised by Fidel Castro and uh, President uh, Chávez, Hugo Chávez. It was called the, the Bolivarian Alternative, um, and ALBA uh, itself sprang out of a, a different initiative which was called Petro Caribe. I think Petro Caribe uh, was founded a little before ALBA itself might be wrong about that. I mean, they, they, they were almost simultaneous, but I, I think the, the original idea was uh, based on uh, Petro Caribe's program, which was to support uh, uh, Caribbean region nations with uh, Venezuelan oil, but not not offering it a, a, at a preferential price, but offering, offering it on preferential terms so that countries would receive Venezuelan oil and only have to pay half upfront on the nail. And they could pay the other half over 20 years at some ridiculously low rate of interest, like 2%. But with what, and, but, and the, the interesting thing about that was that the recipient country committed itself to using the, the, advan- that, the advantage that it gained from that preferential um, uh, deal to uh invest in social and productive projects in uh, their in their country. And so in effect, that was very, very important for, for Nicaragua, especially at that time. But for the, and I think the total was, was something like seventeen countries in the Caribbean and Central American region that benefited from that program.
7: And a substantial amount of money also across the board. Just two things I want to answer in there. One, this is a very Cuban idea. Like Cuban, if you go to med school in Cuba, for example, you don't have to pay tuition or your tuition is abated in one way or another. If you go work in a community and help like uplift a community where where they need doctors. And this is that's a similar incentive to that. The other thing being, you know, ALBA, for example, there's an ideological bond among the countries that, you know, first began to do ALBA, whereas ideology is way down the bottom of the list in a lot of the other uh, multilateral organizations like celac etc where it's pretty much irrelevant that that's a regional project to you know develop the region uplift the region we don't care how you govern yourself we just deal with each other well alba more we're kind of all all on the same page and so let's work together closely on things
11: the, the important thing about ALBA is that, as you say, it, it did have a strong political component and especially an anti-neoliberal component. For, for example, in, in, in Nicaragua, um, f- between 2008 and I think it was 2012, um, Nicaragua was receiving uh, something like $400 million a year in support from uh, the various Petro Caribe and ALBA Programs they used as deficit spending, right? You know something that you're not supposed to do, and 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 that what, as far as the neoliberals are concerned, and that enabled Nicaragua uh, when the IMF came and started telling them, well, you've got to take all uh, these public spending cuts reduction measures, you've got to practically privatise your social security. When the IMF came with their typical demands, Nicaragua was in a position back then to tell them, well, thanks, but no thanks, and we're doing very nicely, um, and you can make your demands, but we think we'd like to do something else. And, And the IMF had to swallow that. They had to accept that. Because they couldn't um, strong arm Nicaragua. The main hold that the IMF had over Nicaragua at the time was uh, being able to influence investor sentiment. Mm. Uh, So foreign investors, if if the IMF said nasty things about Nicaragua, foreign investors would think twice about investing. But that was was an important component of Alba's influence in the region and one of the reasons that... Uh, the united states government detested it so much and did everything they could to sabotage it as they did in the 2009 coup in honduras yeah yeah and 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 because uh, manuel zelaya had uh, taken honduras into alba um, and he was uh, very much influenced by the anti-neoliberal ideas um, that were uh, alba's bread and butter and so you know, and, and Alba, Alba had that very strong influence, but it's also worth remembering, and it still does. And the, just in case people don't know, the main countries in Alba are uh, Cuba and Venezuela, the originators, plus Bolivia, um, which joined under Evo Morales, and it's still it's still quite active and supportive of Alba, but not as much as it might be if Evo Morales had not been um, the victim of a coup in 2019. With all that, with everything that that entails. So apart from um, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, there's Nicaragua. Um, Honduras was uh, uh, dropped out of ALBA after the 2009 coup, and there are kind of six or seven Caribbean island nations. The most uh, outspoken of which, of course, is Saint Vincent and the Grenadines, under their Prime Minister Ralph Gonzalez. Yeah. Um, so, but that and and that's interesting because. Those six or seven countries, uh, 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 Caribbean island nations, are also members of CARICOM. And one of the things that uh, that has been of crucial uh, importance, in particular in Venezuela's case, but also very much so in Nicaragua's case, at least until both Venezuela and Nicaragua decided to leave the Organization of American States, was that CARICOM as a bloc, tended to, not to follow United States diktats in the Organization of American States vis-a-vis Venezuela and Nicaragua. And they st- they're, they're incredibly supportive of Cuba. So that, you know, so although CARICOM, you know, has a very broad ideological kind of spectrum in terms of uh, its, its its governments um, and their loyalties, they, they, they do stand up for the Caribbean and they, they are able to to some extent anyway, resist the demands and impositions of the United States. And the same is true to some extent of the Central Central American integration system, which consists of um, the five Central American countries. Let me get this right. It's Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Belize. Um, and the Dominican Republic, which is a bit strange, but I mean that's 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 what it is. And and those that group of countries uh, work together on all all kinds of very broad issues, and they too constitute a bloc whose leadership, especially under former uh, Guatemalan President Vinicio Cerezo, uh, also tended to be somewhat resistant, uh, surprisingly. Uh, given the Central American context to demands from the United States
7: which is very important of course because since the days of James Monroe the the major problem for integration and sovereignty in the region has been the Monroe doctrine the United States policy towards that region Stephen thank you very much we'll pick it up next week where we left off we have a few more things to cover obviously and appreciate your time
11: okay thanks a lot Don look forward to it
7: 4kpfk I'm Don Debar
12: For KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non NATO media.
10: Thank you so much. We have artillery. Yes. Thank you. We have it. Is it enough? Honestly, not really.
12: That was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressing a joint meeting of Congress on Wednesday where he urged U.S. lawmakers to drop all their disagreements and unite behind Ukraine while advocating for the passage of a $1.7 trillion spending bill that includes $45 billion in military and other aid earmarked for Kiev in 2023. At a later press conference, Zelensky addressed a question about the one Patriot missile defense system that has been promised to
13: Ukraine.
8: What's going to happen when the Patriot missile systems are installed? We'll give a signal to President Biden that we would like to get more of them.
10: <laughs> We're working. That is our life. We are in war. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry.
12: International human rights professor Dan Kovalik says peace is unlikely if Washington continues to provide Kiev with so much heavy weaponry.
13: It makes me very skeptical about how serious either Biden or Zelensky are at this point about truly negotiating a peace. I don't think, generally speaking, weapons contribute to peace. I do think this is an escalation, although at the same time, I think it's also a matter of putting money in the coffers of the defense industry. You know, I think that the U.S. is happy to give that money, whether the Patriot missiles are used or not. It would take a lot of training. That there's a U.S. criminal institution, I'm forgetting which one, but that they are now sounding the the alarm bells that they expect these weapons to end up in the hands of criminal elements. So this is a real problem. It's a problem that I think the Biden administration has no interest in handling. And how do we know this? We know this because the Democrats voted down in a House committee, a a Republican proposal to audit the weapons that have already been sent to Ukraine. So we know that the U.S. has no interest in being held accountable on any of this.
12: The U.S. government spending bill that earmarked around $45 billion to Ukraine and its NATO allies does emphasize that none of the weaponry should go to the Nazi Azov Battalion.
0: None of the funds made available by this act may be used to provide arms, training or other assistance to the Azov Battalion
12: political analyst Alexander McKay in comments to RT said that the proviso not to arm the Azov Battalion is actually an attempt to rationalize the enormous amount of money and weaponry being sent to Ukraine.
0: This is an exercise in trying to retain some plausible deniability. Oh, some weapons got into the hands of uh, some Nazi um, aligned units. So oh, we didn't know that. We didn't we didn't want that to happen, but It's the entire Ukrainian state that's organized around these principles now. So whatever they put in the bill, it's just, um, it's political box ticking, nothing more. So this is a matter of what Hillary Clinton used to call a public position and a private position. In the public position, the American government deplores Nazism and all of its evil crimes. In the private position, they'll welcome and collaborate with Nazis anytime they need a job doing against Russia or against china or against anybody else who is an official designated enemy of the u.s government they will work with any mod anybody no matter how despicable no matter what uh, kind of a blood-soaked past they've got they will work with them if it helps achieve their i.e the u.s government's objectives
12: the taliban has ordered a nationwide ban on university education for afghan women Press
10: TV has the details. The Taliban officials on Tuesday ordered a nationwide ban on university education for Afghan women. Earlier, a letter made public by the spokesman for the Ministry of Higher Education, Ziaullah Hashimi, outlining that the measure would take effect immediately in private and public universities. Today, the Taliban forces barred women from entering Kabul University outraged female students told Press TV about their anguish.
3: This piece of news was really disappointing. Last night, when I was told that the Taliban have ordered girls to be excluded from universities, I couldn't eat or sleep. After so many efforts and attending several classes in hope of making a bright future, they at once ruined everything. This order is very painful and
1: unacceptable. It has to be reversed.
8: This was very shocking. Nowadays we've been sitting our final test. Today, despite knowing that they would not let us in, I rushed to the university. This is very difficult for an Afghan girl to comprehend the weight of being barred from getting education. So far I've been worrying for my sisters who are banned from schools, and from now on I should be concerned about my future too.
10: Afghan experts warn that the new order will have a devastating impact on the future of women as well as the entire Afghan nation. They urge the Taliban authorities to stop rolling back Afghan women's rights. In addition to oppositions from inside Afghanistan, the United Nations and several countries have condemned the order. They have signaled that the Taliban administration won't get recognition until they equally observe the human rights of all Afghans. After taking power, the Taliban promised a softer role and upholding women's rights. But today, many here say that the Taliban have been failing to abide by their promises.
2: What it is, KPFK. Here is your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar Tips. Save the date. Starting on Monday, January 23rd, NAMI Urban LA Family-to-Family Sessions, helping family members understand and support their loved ones' mental health challenges and diagnosis, while maintaining their own well-being. There is no cost to participate, and all course materials are free for this eight-week class on Zoom. To register, call 323-294-7814 or visit NAMIUrbanLA.org. Get help with energy and water bills through DWP, Department Water and Power. Up to $5,000 tax-free utility bill assistance available through the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program and Low Income Household Water Assistance Program for eligible households. There is no impact to public charge determinations and other benefits. Learn how to apply at LADWP.com or Google help is on the way LADWP. The 31st Annual Empowerment Congress Summit will be back in person Saturday, January 14th, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. on the campus of Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science with newly elected Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass as the keynote speaker. To register and for info, go to empowermentcongress.org. The Los Angeles Zoo's brightest annual tradition will transform the zoo grounds into a world of light and holiday magic. Every night until January 22nd, go to lazoo.org to plan your visit. Pershing Square, holiday ice daily through New Year's Day in the heart of downtown Los Angeles. Black Women Birthing Justice brings the Frontline Doula Hotline to connect black pregnant and postpartum individuals throughout the U.S. with a community doula in need of non-emergency emotional support and practical guidance at no cost. Monday through Sunday, 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., text doula HELP to 833-987-2908 to schedule a call with a doula. For more information, visit FrontlineDoulas.com. Meet Impu Kamut for weekly Kasatashi Shawan sessions on Zoom, Tuesdays and Fridays at 8.30 a.m. Saturdays live in Leimert Park, at 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. For more information, call 213-447-7700. I'm Angela Birdsong, and this is your your KPFK Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar.
1: Thank you so much, Angela, and I'm Ziri Rideau, and we're so happy that, again, you've been with us in this show. You've been listening to the Rebel Alliance News. This is our fourth week. We're very excited to bring you progressive news to Southern California after all these years where KPFK didn't have their own news show. If you want to be part of our news show in some way, if you have story ideas, comments, or want to volunteer even – Please email us at news at kpfk.org. We would love to hear from you, have some comments from you. And we would hope that you join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, we wish you a wonderful, fabulous evening. Stay beautiful as you are and take good care of yourself. Thank you. Now we want to give thanks to Wendell Handy, our engineer and Tandy, I'm sorry, I'm messing up the name. you got to say it. Um, Tandy and Paulina Vasiliev and Don Debar and Dan Newman, who all provided some work on this. Thanks so much. Have a great evening. Hi, this is Jessica Aldridge from Eco Justice Radio. Check us out on KPFK at our new time, Fridays from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Join us as we present environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, intended to amplify community voices, broaden the reach of grassroots based movements, and inspire action. That's Eco Justice Radio, Fridays at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. And remember to support the station by visiting kpfk.org to make your donation.
11: Hi, this is Robbie Krieger from The Doors, and you are listening to Fiercely Independent, KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and for the world at www.kpfk.org. Support free speech and free form radio. Peace.
12: And this
2: is KPFK,
7: ninety point seven FM.
3: Yeah, yeah,
10: yeah yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, yeah.
7: This is Stanley Clark. Free speech radio can't survive without your generous support Become